0: From Public Radio International, I'm Hari Sreenivasan, and this is America Abroad.
1: And I'm Donna McKelligan with the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. This is Alberta at Noon.
0: Today, our programs have joined forces for the Keystone XL Pipeline, an international town hall. We've brought together two live audiences, one here in the U.S. at the studios of NET Nebraska in Lincoln, and the other at the CBC in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Hello, Nebraska, and hello, Alberta. <laughs> Listeners, if you don't know, there's already one Keystone pipeline that runs from Canada to Texas. But the Keystone XL, the last phase, is an added pipeline aimed to increase the amount of oil that could be transported almost 1,200 miles from Alberta, Canada, through Montana, past the Bakken oil fields to Steelhead, Nebraska. It would connect with existing pipelines to take the oil to Texas refineries on the Gulf of Mexico. This last phase of the pipeline has been the subject of much controversy, both here in Nebraska and nationwide. Although a Pew poll last year indicates that 65% of Americans support the pipeline, the controversy has delayed the pipeline's completion. Here's President Obama speaking in June of 2013 on the subject.
2: And our national interest will be served only if this project does not significantly exacerbate the problem of carbon pollution the net effects of the pipelines impact
3: the net effects of the pipelines impact
2: on our climate will be absolutely cr- critical to determining whether this project is allowed to go forward
0: President Obama is expected to make some sort of decision after the U.S. midterm elections on whether to approve the pipeline. But until then, we're going to hear from the people who live closest to it on why or why not it should be built.
1: And Hari, here in Alberta, oil producers are wondering why the decision is taking so long. The prime minister himself, Stephen Harper who is a proponent of Keystone XL, has called approval of the project a no-brainer. But just so people in the U.S. know, Keystone XL is just part of a larger energy debate that's taking place around this province, and much of that debate centers on the development of the Alberta oil sands.
0: Donna, just for the record and for this audience, what are oil sands?
1: Well, Simply put, the oil sands is, as the phrase suggests, a mixture of oil, sand, and clay. It's also called bitumen, and it is plentiful in the northern parts of Alberta. There are three main areas for oil sands extraction, the Athabasca, Peace River, and the Cold Lake area. And further to south in the province, you will see the city of Calgary, and that is where most of the energy industry is centred, including TransCanada, the company behind Keystone.
0: All right. Thanks, Donna. We'll be hearing from audiences here in Nebraska and Alberta in a moment. But first, I'd like to do a lightning round of statements from our guests. Joining me here on stage in Lincoln is Ken Winston. He is the policy advocate for the Nebraska Sierra Club, who works to educate the public about the effects of climate change and the environmental dangers of coal and oil extraction. So, Ken, in roughly 30 seconds or so, why are you opposed to the building of this pipeline?
2: First of all, there's the tar sands process, which kills every living thing in its path. There's the impact on climate change, which President Obama talked about. It definitely will exacerbate the problem of climate change. There are threats to our aquifer. We are home to the North America's largest aquifer, the Ogallala Aquifer, and water is much more valuable than oil. And finally, threats to our rights and the the rights of humans, Native Americans, and fundamental American rights. Looking out in the audience, I see many people who could elaborate far better than I on all of these subjects.
0: Okay, we'll give them a chance. I also want to give a chance now to John Keene. He's a veterinarian, he's an academic, and he's running uncontested for state senate, an elected member of the Southern Public Power District Board of Directors. It's a publicly owned power utility in Nebraska that believes that the pipeline will help lower costs to its ratepayers. So, John, here's your 30 seconds. Why do you support the pipeline?
4: I certainly support the Keystone XL pipeline and its development for a number of reasons. We've seen an exhaustive five-year process, which demonstrates that we have a well-studied, well-planned, safe infrastructure project that is shovel-ready and ready to begin within the state of Nebraska. It brings forth a number of important economic opportunities for economic development, both at the local, state, and national level. It enhances and increases our North American energy security and independence. And it also sends a a proactive signal when we talk about some of the controversies and issues surrounding whether it's a siting issue or how we approach large-scale infrastructure projects that Nebraska is a community which will work together ultimately as a community to do that, which is in the best interest of all of its
0: residents. All right. Thanks, John. Donna, tell us about your guests.
1: Well, I have two guests on stage with me here, and uh, I'm going to go first to Corey Goulet, who's on my immediate left. And Corey is the president of Keystone Projects for TransCanada. Corey, we just heard from Nebraska. Tell us, from your point of view, why you think this pipeline needs to be built.
5: The advantages are are manifold, but the three primary advantages are Uh, the economic benefits that it brings to the regions where it runs, both in terms of jobs but also taxes and economic stimulus. Secondly, this is a safe pipeline, and I know John mentioned that, but this pipeline has been uh, studied for six years now. There's over 17,000 pages of study, and we know that it has a minimal impact to the environment and won't increase uh, greenhouse gases uh, very much at all. And then finally, this pipeline is supplying energy that's needed by North America. The U.S. uses some 15 million barrels a day of crude oil, and it has to import a significant amount of that. And studies indicate that up to 2035, they'll have to import as much as 7.5 million barrels a day.
1: Next to my guest, Corey Goulet, is Andrew Leach. And Andrew is the Enbridge Professor of Energy Policy at the University of Alberta. And just a little disclosure here, Hari, Andrew's position is partly sponsored by another pipeline company. Andrew does not receive funds directly from Enbridge. His opinions are his own and sometimes quite critical of energy policy on behalf of the government as well as the oil industry. Andrew, much has been made about the pipeline and the fact that it will carry product from the Alberta oil sands. What do you think of Keystone XL?
3: I've been looking at Keystone XL for years now, as many of us have, and and what's been very interesting about this pipeline is how it's forced us to think about various aspects of the energy industry that we haven't thought much about before. Probably the key one in Canada and in the U.S., but particularly in Canada, is reconciling oil, oil sands development with climate change. And we saw President Obama's Georgetown speech Um, on the coverage already or heard from it. And I think from that moment forward, that really changed the discussion. And we saw that in the debate here, going from, well, we need this pipeline to get the oil sands out of the ground to essentially the oil sands are coming out of the ground anyway. This pipeline doesn't matter very much. The debate turned on its head. Uh, The second reason why I think this has forced us to think about how we handle energy infrastructure is we've talked about the benefits of building this pipeline largely in terms of the costs of building it, the jobs it would take to build it, the resources, the taxes, all of these things. Whereas pipelines are really about getting product efficiently to market from a seller to a buyer in a way that minimizes those costs. I've facetiously joked on a number of occasions, if we wanted to create jobs transporting oil, we'd move it by bucket brigade, not
0: by pipeline.
1: Thank you, Andrew. Hurry.
0: All right. So I'd like to bring the audiences into the conversation a little bit here, too. But I need to add a note here. I'm going to be using the term oil sands, not tar sands, to be consistent with the CBC's editorial policy. So, Donna, I'd like to put a question out to your audience there in Calgary. What have the oil sands meant to the people in the province in terms of jobs or standard of living?
1: Why don't uh, I go to... Debra Yedlin, who is a columnist with the Calgary Herald and a commentator on the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation's CBC Morning Show.
6: Debra? When you talk about the benefits that accrue to the province, first of all, Alberta is basically, because of the oil sands, is the economic engine of this country. And we've seen a huge influx in terms of the number of people that have come into Alberta to, to live here and work here. The government obviously benefits from the royalties from the tax revenues that goes to fund social programs, infrastructure, education, health care. And so from a standard of living perspective, Albertans have definitely benefited.
1: Thank you, Deborah. And if you could pass
6: the microphone
1: to your neighbour, Andrew Nicky Fork, who's a best-selling author in Canada of several books, one on the oil sands, which he calls tar sands. Andrew, what have the oil sands, or from your perspective, the tar sands meant to people here in this province?
7: Well, they mean a lot of different things. And I think, I mean, Deborah has focused on some of the the economic benefits, but there have been a lot of political and social drawbacks from the kind of rapid development that we've seen in this province. Um, Peter Lougheed, many years ago, laid out five conditions for reasonable resource development. Behave like an owner, collect your fair share, save for the rainy day, add value to the resource, clean up the mess. And we have failed on all those counts.
1: Thank you very much, Andrew. And Hari, we would like to put a question to your audience there in Nebraska. And um, it's about the number of pipelines that are already running through your state. Why is the KXL stirring up so much controversy despite the fact there are so many other pipelines?
8: Okay. Just step up right to the mic here. Sir, go ahead and introduce yourself. Uh, Randy Thompson, Nebraska Cattleman. Well, first of all, We've heard this argument over and over again. But I can guarantee you there are no other pipelines in the sandhills in Nebraska that would come anywhere close to being the magnitude of the Keystone XL. And it's full of toxic chemicals along with tar sands. And it's pumping at like 1,300 and some pounds of pressure, which would mean any type of a small leak could go directly into our water supply. And this has been a major, major concern for Nebraska farmers and ranchers.
0: Brad Miller, I think you had sent a card in.
5: Yes. I I don't understand why it's so controversial. It should have been built already. One's already been built. There's other pipelines through this state. Not only this state. You talk about the Ogallala Aquifier. You look at a map of Texas, Oklahoma. There's already way more pipelines in those two states than what you're talking here in Nebraska. So what's... uh, I, I can't believe it's so controversial. Okay.
9: It's all right. And, sir, go ahead and step up. Yes, I'm John Hansen and uh, I'm the president of the Nebraska Farmers Union, so I represent a lot of landowners. At the beginning of this process, Transcanda looked at the map and simply took a geographic shortcut right through the Ogallala Aquifer, right through the middle of our water supply. And so all of the data says that, in fact, that pipelines do leak, So the National Response Center data for pipeline leaks documented that 18,558 pipeline leaks were reported in the last 12 years. That's 1,546 pipeline leaks per year. So when you have a pipeline leak under that kind of pressure in the middle of your water supply, it'll not be a matter of how many feet to water. It'll be a matter of how many feet underwater. Is in fact the pipeline. So if it leaks, it's automatically in the water supply.
0: Okay, so John Keene, we've heard at least a couple of environmental concerns. How do you reassure those people that have these legitimate fears about what happens to their land if there's an accident?
4: When it comes to the safety record of pipelines in general, we have to look at um, existing models that we have already in place and whether or not they have posed any significant threat or significant risk in their operation um, throughout their lifetime. We have a number of examples we can look to here in Nebraska, um, which transport um, oil through many of the same types of soils, many over the same Ogallala aquifer, and have uh, represented uh, decades-old technology that has been safe and reliable for over 60 years, uh, the Plat- Pipeline going west to east across Nebraska crosses the Ogallala Aquifer, goes south of the Platte River, and uh, has operated virtually unknown and, and uh, most Nebraskans unaware that it's been there. It's been so safe over these years. We also certainly have the example of of stewardship that has been uh, provided for us by the original Keystone Pipeline. So we talk about a number of the safety issues, about um, spill response, about uh, the monitoring of of the pipeline. We have an existing model using modern technology by this same company, which has demonstrated to be safe and a good steward of our land, air, and water here in Nebraska.
0: Ken, as you said, there's people in the audience that express your point of view very well. So if if you have something to add?
2: Yeah, there's actually several things I'd like to add. One is John was just talking about how safe the the first pipeline was. Well, it leaked 14 times in the first year of operation. One of them was a 500-barrel leak, which is 21,000 gallons. That's not a good safety record to have 14 leaks in the first year. Okay. Donna, you've heard some of these concerns?
1: Yes, indeed. And we have Corey Goulet, who is responsible for the Keystone XL project from TransCanada. You've you've heard people raise these concerns over and over again about pipeline leaks, ruptures, explosions. How can you possibly assure people in Nebraska that there won't be an incident or an accident with Keystone XL?
5: Well, first of all, uh, I think, and John referred to it, Uh, The original base keystone, which was completed in 2010, has safely transported 610 million barrels of crude oil. The 14 leaks that uh, Ken mentioned uh, were in the first year of operation, but they weren't the pipeline itself. They were at our pump stations, and we have facilities to collect that oil and make sure that it doesn't get off the property, and that was cleaned up very quickly. In fact, only one leak was 400 barrels, the second largest leak was 15 barrels, and everything else was a very small leak. And those occurred out of seals, out of valves, out of out of equipment at the pump station. So the pipe itself has not leaked uh, in any of these cases. Pipelines in general, I think it's been discussed already, are the safest way of transporting hydrocarbons. And in the U.S., uh, the, the record of pipelines is very good, And the number of incidents has been reduced by a quarter of what it was 10 years ago. In Canada, the improvement is some 60%. In addition to that, we have agreed to 59 special conditions. And those are contained in the final supplemental environmental impact statement. Conditions that involve the construction of the facility, the materials that are used uh, for the pipeline, as well as the operation and maintenance uh, over the long term of the service of the facilities and those will make this the safest pipeline in America. They add a a level of redundancy much above what is normal in the industry.
1: Thank you. Hari? I want to ask
0: a question to uh, a member of the audience in Calgary, uh, Ed Whittingham. He's with the Energy and Environment Research Group, the the Pembina Institute. Uh, uh, You've been listening to this conversation. Your thoughts?
10: Great. Thanks, Hari. I think when you look at this pipeline and you look at the barrels per day, that it will facilitate in terms of production, and what that means in terms of an issue that my institute works closely on, and that's the implications in greenhouse gas emissions. You have to put it in a little bit of historical context and in pace and scale context to understand why the concern. And when I think to the mid-90s, here in this province in Alberta, we had an oil sands task force that set a production goal out of the oil sands of a million barrels per day by 2020. Well, we achieved that in 2004, 16 years ahead of schedule. And I think one of the issues is our environmental management systems have been playing catch-up ever since. So that's where we've come from. And currently we're at about 2.5 million barrels of production a day. When you build out, it'll take you up to 3 million. But the industry is looking to double or triple that, that uh, rate of production. So whether it's a doubling or tripling of production, it's hard to imagine we're not going to have a commensurate increase in environmental impact in spite of the best efforts of this, this science lab that we have going in the oil sands right now. And that is taking us in the opposite direction of what Canada and the United States have both committed to internationally in terms of a climate change reduction target. So it's hard to square up. You increase that production, where are those emissions decreases going to come from to allow for that while achieving our target? And right now the math simply does not add up.
1: All right. Thanks very much, Ed Whittingham, from the Pembina Institute. Hari. Okay,
0: we've got a a question from an audience member. um, Barb Thompson says, my husband and I live in rural Nebraska and are dependent on well water in our home. What will TransCanada do when their pipeline bursts and fouls the homeowners, ranchers, and farmers? Um, Not specific to her home, but I think other people might have that same question.
1: Corey Goulet of TransCanada.
5: Well, obviously, prevention is the first thing that we do. And I talked a little bit about how you prevent uh, leaks from happening in the first place. But as important, when you do have an incident, you make sure you manage it very quickly. You shut down the pipeline. We have thousands of sensors on on the pipeline that pick up temperature and pressure and flow rate signals every five seconds and through satellites send that to a control center. And as soon as we detect a problem, we shut it down. And that allows us to minimize the impact of any potential incident. If there is an incident, then you deal with it. It's our responsibility to clean it up. It's our responsibility to make sure that the problem is addressed.
1: All right. Thank you very much. And Hari, back to you folks in Nebraska.
0: We've uh, got a few comments on Twitter. I'll just read uh, the first one that comes to me here. It says, uh, Marsha White um, is... Riding the chance of polluting the Oglala aquifer is too great. There's no way to clean it up once the pipeline leaks. I think that was in response. Um, We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. (laughs) Welcome back to the Keystone XL Pipeline, an international town hall. I'm joined by a live audience here in Lincoln, Nebraska, one in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, and our host there, Donna McElligott of the CBC's Alberta at Noon. Hello, everyone. (laughs) Hello this conversation about the Keystone XL Pipeline on the subject of economic costs and benefits. In the third part of this program, we'll talk a little bit more about energy security and independence. Donna?
1: Thanks, Hari. And a lot of people are wondering what the real numbers might be about job creation from this pipeline. And some people here would like to hear from people in the Nebraska audience about what is your estimate in terms of jobs created by the Keystone XL Pipeline?
0: John Keane, an elected member of the Southern Public Power District Board of Directors. You want to start? Certainly the, the
4: figures that I've seen in terms of direct jobs and construction jobs are 2,700 during that, that initial construction phase with indirect jobs uh, provided by economic development and activity associated with construction in that 4,400 range. That said, I do tend to agree that the real crux of this is not necessarily as a jobs project, but one that certainly promotes a greater degree of economic development for Nebraska, certainly, as opposed to merely just the jobs
0: component. Are there members of local unions in the audience here in Nebraska that would have an opinion on it? Go ahead.
3: My name is John Bourne. I'm uh, based in Omaha, Nebraska. I work for the IBW. I'm uh, out of the construction department in Washington, D.C. This is a critical project for us. Uh, A good amount of work comes out of something like this. Uh, Not only this, but the ancillary work. TransCanada has done a really good job, even with the first line that they built through. Uh, they've already gone back and we've done safety stuff and and all that, and it provides more jobs. So, this is not the Suez Canal. This is not going to change the world by any shape. But I'll tell you what, it's very very good for construction workers.
2: Okay, I'd like to respond to what John King said, which is the numbers that you used are significantly higher than the numbers that the State Department came up with in their findings about the number of jobs that would be created. And my recollection is that, that the numbers were uh, around 1,000 temporary jobs. And actually, there was an article in the Omaha World Herald when the first pipeline was being built. And at that time, TransCanada said that it would be between eight and 900 jobs. And I understand any job is an important job if it's your job. And if you're like John trying to find jobs for other people, then I, I respect that. And I'm not going to Decry that in any way, but as I said earlier, there's more jobs that we can get through energy that will benefit us in the long run. That will benefit the planet in the long run. And I've never heard of wind a wind spill damaging the aquifer. Uh, Donna, go ahead.
1: Yes, thanks, uh, Hari. We have a couple of panelists who want to weigh in on this because uh, the jobs issue is viewed. Uh, from a different perspective in this part of the province. Andrew Leach, how would you address this? I
3: don't know if it's different in this part of the province or different if you're an economics professor, but generally speaking, uh, as economists, we're concerned about a couple of things. One is productivity. And so selling a project on the basis of using more resources to create the same thing is simply backwards from what we should want. From an infrastructure perspective, we'd love to be able to snap our fingers and have a piece of infrastructure there tomorrow, whether it's a wind farm or a pipeline. The fact that we have to devote resources, be they capital or labor resources to it, means we can have fewer of them for every dollar we spend. And so to sell a project based on the costs of building it just seems completely backwards.
1: Uh, Corey Goulet, can you speak to how many jobs you believe the construction of the Keystone XL will create in Nebraska?
5: Sure, I I can. And, you know, there's going to be three spreads uh, with probably about 1,000 people per spread and some five pump stations in Nebraska. About 100 people work on each pump station. So if you do the quick math, you get up to the numbers, and I haven't even started to talk about engineers and quality folks and safety folks and those type of people who are involved. You get up to the numbers that we're talking about, over 3,000 jobs uh, right in the state of Nebraska alone. Overall, this project's going to have 9,000 jobs in the U.S. and about 2,200 jobs in Canada direct jobs, construction jobs. And the uh, the final Supplemental Environmental Impact Statement indicated that if you include indirect jobs as well, this will create some 42,000 jobs. As important, though, is the $3.4 billion of gross domestic product that it will add to the U.S. And beyond that, the property taxes that will be paid are very important to the counties where this project uh, runs. In Nebraska alone, there'll be over $20 million a year in property taxes paid in the counties there. And in the U.S. as a whole, there's some 27 counties that we run through, and 17 of those will have their property tax revenues increased by more than 10%. And some of those will actually double. It's that significant for those counties. So it's more than just jobs. It's the economic stimulus that it brings, but it does so efficiently. It is the most efficient way of transporting liquid hydrocarbons. So you get the double benefit of adding to the economy, but using the most efficient technology to move the energy that's required.
1: Thank you.
0: I want to ask a, a, a question to the Canadian audience. You know, we heard actually a couple of different people here talk about how possibly jobs could impact them, how the cost of power could go down. So to the audience in Calgary, um, do you have examples of sort of how your life has changed for you economically after the pipelines in your area have have come to be? Anybody in the audience in Canada?
1: Yes, we
11: have a guest here. My name is Mary Knuckleby, and I'm a retired English teacher. So I don't work in the fossil fuel industry. And what Oil and gas in Alberta has meant to me in my lifetime is that this is one of the most expensive cities to live in in North America. There is a lot of money here for some of the people. And people forget that the Canadian GDP, oil and gas, makes up about 2% of it. But in Alberta, if you're in the oil and gas industry, you make a pretty penny. But there's a lot of us who teach, who work in hospitals who work in service industries, in care industries. And for us, the major difference is that everything is more expensive. So I think the idea that somewhere these pipelines make billions of dollars, is that's true, but where that money goes, it goes to shareholders. Often it goes out of the country. And so I don't see that for the average person, if they're not in oil and gas... That it makes, it doesn't make us rich. In many cases, it means we have greater debt load, especially young people today.
1: Thank you very much for making that comment. And we have a comment here
6: from Deborah
1: Yedlin in the front row.
6: So I'd just like to respond to your comment. You said you're a retired English teacher and um, your pension fund is invested in the energy sector, which makes up 35% of the Toronto Stock Exchange and has been a very important part of your retirement fund. So that's how you do benefit from the energy sector. And from a pipeline perspective, I think it's hard to say that we as Albertans benefit directly. We do benefit from the fact that our, what's produced here is priced on a closer to what is fair value. But the other piece to remember is that the fact that that differential is narrowed means the government surplus... Exist, which means there's more money for schools, there's more money for health care, and there's more money for infrastructure. So that's the part of the disconnect that seems to be pervasive when it comes to energy production. It
11: would be nice to be able to respond. Mm-hmm. It's a source of some concern to me that my public pension is participating in the total destruction of our boreal forest. The woodland caribou is within a generation of going extinct. Our oil and gas experts blame it on the wolves, but it's actually little islands of extinction that they create between their clear cuts. All right. Thank so, you very much.
1: And, and, and we will get to that part of the discussion in just a moment, but we're talking about how... Don't
11: hold us prisoner because our pension funds are invested in oil and gas. Help us to get a more diversified economy so that everybody can benefit from a sustainable lifestyle.
1: Okay, thank you very much uh, for addressing that point. And Ed Whittingham of the Pemina Institute, how would you respond?
10: Uh, I think without question, sitting here in Calgary, we've all benefited from the oil and gas economy tremendously, not least of which are the wonderful schools and hospitals we have. But to get to Andrew's earlier point, we have this benefit of the debate around pipelines an inflection point to think of where we want to go. To use a Canadianism, we don't want to skate to where the puck is we want to skate to where the puck is going. And for our Nebraska friends, maybe you can think of a football analogy, you know, go to where the football's going. We had a commission of some of the top CEOs, ex-political leaders, and brightest economists in the world release a report that looked at, can we grow our economies in a way that is healthy and sustainable while moving toward this low-carbon economy that we need to go to for a whole bunch of reasons, not least of which are environmental reasons. And the commission found not only can we do that, but moreover, we can actually have higher rates of growth, healthy, sustained economic growth, through going in a low-carbon direction than being dependent
0: on the fossil fuel economy.
1: Thank you very much. Uh, that's Ed Whittingham from the Pembina Institute. Hurry,
0: uh, Ken, I want to turn uh, the conversation slightly. I mean, are there any circumstances under which you would support the building of a new energy infrastructure? I mean, it seems that oil and gas where oil and natural gas aren't going away anytime soon?
2: Well, I think, first of all, we need to start thinking about ways of getting away from oil infrastructure because I think it's as Albert Einstein said, you cannot simultaneously prepare for war and and seek peace. And we cannot combat the issues of climate change while we're building more infrastructure for supporting fossil fuels. So... (laughs) So... um, It's possible that that there would be a situation where we could say, okay, this does make sense. But at the present time, we need to be thinking rather than thinking about, okay, how are we going to create this project? And and I really appreciated the woman, the teacher from Canada who got up and and spoke about the devastation that's occurring because nobody's talking about that. I mean, we're talking about total destruction. We're talking about something that's filled with life and killing every little living thing. And nobody's talking about that. And we ought to be talking about it that. We ought to be thinking about that. Um, that, that that is not uh, an appropriate way of getting energy. And when there are ways of getting energy that have minimal environmental impacts, that's what we need to be doing. And as the gentleman from the Pembina Institute pointed out, we can have a better economy with cleaner energy.
4: Respectfully, I will say that I think, unfortunately, this debate has created a, a false dichotomy in the choice between you're either pro-hydrocarbons and pro-fossil fuels or you're pro-renewables. And I think that's, that's a false decision and a false choice that we're presenting to our consumers. Um, globally, we are still going to be a hydrocarbon-dependent economy globally. They're not going away at any time in the near future. Development of this project in no way precludes the development of renewable resources. Okay. Donna?
1: Hari, we have uh, Andrew Nikiforak here who will address something that came up just a couple of moments ago about the degradation and the devastation that many people fear uh, are taking place because of the oil sands development and the shipping of bitumen through a pipeline. Andrew, can you uh, respond to that? Sure.
7: Yeah, the the tar sands is an uh, earth-destroying project, no doubt about it. It doesn't kill everything in its path, but it is about digging up the boreal forest. It is about creating massive tailing ponds that are among the world's largest dams. It is about uh, increasing CO2 emissions. Uh, And it is a signature uh, of how difficult and extreme hydrocarbons have become. This is not your grandmother's oil. This is not light oil from East Texas. This is stuff you actually have to dilute with light crude or condensate in order to get it to move through a pipeline. This is a junk crude It's among the costliest, the most high-capital, high-risk, high-carbon, high-water impact fossil fuel on the planet. And to top it off, it's delivering fewer and fewer energy returns to boot.
1: Um, Hari, we have uh, a comment here from Greg Stringham from the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers to respond to uh, what was just said.
12: Sure, and I respect Andrew's opinion on this, but you've got to take a look at really what's going on with the oil industry as we move forward. We are looking at this being a very, very large resource, and I agree what he says with the development of it. It is higher cost than it is in some other places, but the oil that comes out of this, let's be very fair, is very similar to what's coming out of Bakersfield in California, what's coming out of Venezuela and other places as well. And so we're not trying to push this onto the economy. We're saying that the market can make that decision, and renewables are a big part of that shift. The energy industry gets that. It's all in competition for the development of the, the oil and gas and renewables and hydro and nuclear that the world is looking for. So we're not pushing this on here. I, a, a phrase that I often use in development of this is, you know, Canadians and Americans will decide how much oil they want to use, and we just want to be able to supply that in the best way possible.
1: Thank you. Hari? Corey, we kind of had
0: a a question really for you. When you hear these um, bigger picture concerns about transitioning away from fossil fuels, what does your company think about this? What's the plan going forward?
5: Well, we understand that we have to move to a less carbon-intensive future. We've spent over $5 billion ourselves investing in wind farms and solar projects and hydro facilities, uh, in nuclear emissionless energy sources, Uh, and we understand that we're going to move that way over time, and I think that we have to let the technology evolve to the point where it's practical to do so.
0: When we come back, whether or not the KXL pipeline gives the United States more energy security and independence. I'm Hari Sreenivasan, and you're listening to the Keystone XL Pipeline, an international town hall from America Abroad and the CBC in Alberta, Canada. Welcome back to the Keystone XL Pipeline, and international town hall. I'm joined by a live audience here in Lincoln, Nebraska, one in Calgary, Canada, and our co-host there, Donna McElligott of the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation and the radio program Alberta at Noon. Hello, everyone. So let's let's start really talking a little bit about energy independence here. And I also want to raise an issue that is near and dear to the folks here in Nebraska, and that is a legal dispute that's going on in this state that's now being reviewed by the state Supreme Court. As I understand it, the lawsuit filed by Nebraska landowners challenges Governor Dave Heinemann's authority in approving the pipeline route in January, saying that it is the Public Service Commission that regulates pipeline routes, not the governor. We've got a comment. Go ahead and identify yourself.
9: Go ahead. I'm John Hanson. I'm the president of Nebraska Farmers Union, and we actually represent a substantial number of landowners on this path. And so this lawsuit is about the proper use of eminent domain. There is no other power more powerful that the government has unless it's either incarceration or the taking of life than it is the taking of private property without due cause and proper process And so from the very beginning, we have fought TransCanada's dollars as we have tried to develop a fair and balanced uh, approach in the state. They have spent hundreds of thousands of dollars impacting our process, telling us uh, what we can and can't do. But at the end of the day, for landowners, the reason that landowners are not trusting of TransCanada, and it is a trust question, is that they have simply looked him in the lie, sat down at their kitchen table and lied to him over and over again about simple, easy things that are easy to be able to tell. When widows call me up crying and say I had to sign because the TransCanada land agents who represent TransCanada and how they operate in our state uh, told her that if she didn't sign the easement and they used eminent domain, she would get nothing. Well, that's a complete, total fabrication. She would get what the eminent domain process would yield and so, so there's a trust issue. That's there is a huge trust okay. issue.
0: Okay. Uh, with those thoughts, Donna, I send it back to you.
1: Thanks very much, Hari. And of course, uh, I think Corey Goulet is once again on the hot spot. Let's talk about eminent domain, private property, and the assumption of risk.
5: Well, first of all, we we use the process of eminent domain as the kind of tool of last resort, and uh, we pride ourselves in our relationship with landowners. We have 40,000 miles of pipelines in North America and some 60,000 landowners who we view as our partners. We treat them with honesty, fairness, respect. We try to provide them all the information they need to make an informed decision. Right now, we have secured all the land in Montana. We've secured all the land in South Dakota. Because of the reroute in Nebraska, we've we've secured about 84% of the land. And we continue to work with landowners to find out what their issues are, their concerns are, try to address those, and avoid uh, going to a court of peers to determine what a fair value is for their land.
1: Thank you. Back to you, Hari.
0: We have a couple of audience members here. Randy? I'm sorry, identify yourself.
8: If that is true, then why did your company threaten my 92-year-old mother back in 2010 with the use of eminent domain? She received a letter from your company that gave her 30 days to accept your offer, or it said, we will immediately take you to eminent domain court. Now, that's been four years ago. You do not have a permit now. You did not have one then. So you tell me, explain yourself, please, sir.
0: Okay. Without getting into literally the letter written to your mother, which is not a great use of our time, I completely hear what you're saying. Actually,
2: I think it is a very important. It, yes, sir? The way that people are treated.
0: That's that's totally fine. Fa- no, no, no. I, I'm, not dis- I'm just saying that we can't necessarily litigate your specific case. But in the abstract, what you're talking about is that there is you and others have said that you've had a problem with how it's come across. You've had a problem with the trust. That, I think, is a better use of having him explain it. But getting back into the weeds of the specific letter— that might not work for the rest of the country, but I don't necessarily... And I think
2: the rest of the country needs to hear people like Randy Thompson. That's how they'll understand it. I do know from personal experience in,
4: involved with you know citing and, and issues of utilizing, uh, whether it's a, a easement acquisition process for things such as as substations you know even when we're talking about locally elected public power boards talking to neighbors and our ratepayers and consumers when we want to build a transmission line or or site a substation those discussions always become tense this is this is property this is something that we've invested our lives in and so i think that that a respect for the eminent domain process but also a clear understanding of what it means in the bigger picture is certainly
2: um what is called for okay i would like to comment about the eminent domain process We're talking about a private company exercising eminent domain for private profit. Generally, when eminent domain is used, it's for public good. It's for when you want to build a road, or as Mr. Keene indicated, if, if you have a public power district that wants to build a transmission line, because that benefits everybody, as opposed to something where it's going to benefit some shareholders in Canada, as opposed to people in Nebraska. Okay, so we did we, we did have a goal
0: of talking a little bit about energy independence in this segment. So let's see if Canada can start talking about that, Donna.
1: All right, thank you, Hari and Andrew Leach. Is there a time, from your perspective, that the U.S. will not be dependent on oil that comes from Canada?
3: But yes, the U.S. is probably heading towards very near to or surpassing independence on the petroleum products and and liquids front but not on heavy oil. So even though you may have some exports of either light crudes or refined products you're still going to see a U.S. economy into any projection I've seen which is importing heavy crudes. So if you're talking about a heavy crude market whether it comes from Canada or it comes from somewhere else is really the question at hand.
1: We would like to go to Greg Stringham from the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers. Greg Stringham go ahead.
12: As we take a look at this, I mean, the oil producers that we have in Canada are looking for their markets, and the United States has been one of the best and biggest markets for us to be able to sell our oil into. As long as the U.S. is still importing oil, which it still is to the tune of 7 or 8 million barrels a day, all we're looking to do is displace those imports from other areas and do it in a way that is in a sustainable and safe way, as you've heard today. So really, when that oil gets sold down into those refineries, it would be displacing oil that has been coming historically from places like Venezuela that had very similar quality oil that was coming into those heavy oil refineries.
1: Greg Stringham, thank you from Cap And um, part of the whole equation, of course, are First Nations in Alberta. And getting the oil out, whatever you call it, or the bitumen, uh, requires having several First Nations on board with that. And some have argued that their rights have not been honoured the way they would like. Let's just listen in now to a comment from a gentleman who represents First Nations here.
0: Well, I think that it's a relationship that uh, historically has been, you know, extremely one-sided and exploitive uh, on the side of the oil sand sector or the energy sector, rather working in partnership with a government that didn't have any respect for our fundamental rights.
1: Okay, that's Clayton Thomas Mueller, and he is speaking on behalf of First Nations here, who have big concerns about the way the oil is being developed and their rights in the whole process. Hari?
13: Yep, we've got a comment from the audience here as well. Go ahead and identify yourself. Yeah, uh, hello, my name is Aldo Sewane. As a representative of the Rosebud Sioux Tribe and Yochetti-Shakowin, the Great Sioux Nation in South Dakota, and along with working with our Ponca and Omaha relatives we have not at any point of this had proper consultation. And we took that to the State Department Department of Interior. According to the 1851 Fort Laramie Treaty and 1868 Fort Laramie Treaties, all those mineral rights in South Dakota belong to the Great Sioux Nation. And we haven't been properly consulted. Um, we're out there fighting for our lives. This isn't just about tar sands. Okay, We keep hearing about crude oil. This is tar sands. and the, And the detriment that it can have on our environment and our families and communities, we're looking at the poisoning of our water, we look at the taking of land, and we look at the culturally and historical areas of significance that there are laws to protect that Trans Canada has not gone through the proper policies and procedures okay. that have been set by the federal government.
0: Thank you. So I just want to try to close out the program maybe looking a bit forward here, and I just want to ask our guests here a relatively simple question. What if the KXL pipeline is not built? What would that mean for you? Very briefly, uh, let's start with you, John.
4: I think in terms of the consequences of a failure to build Keystone XL, there are a number of implications that has on, on how we shift uh, transportation of crude oil coming from the Bakken and ultimately um, transporting that oil from tar sands development and the, the concomitant effects that will have on uh, how we access grain markets and commodity markets via rail. I think we have greater public policy issues in looking at, uh, particularly here in Nebraska, what kind of an image we present to industry, to investors who are looking to cite major projects in our state for economic development. And I think it has consequences on ultimately how we address uh, economic development and infrastructure at the local level. How do we go about these processes? And what does this delay say about our ability to really engage in the kind of economic development that we need to do going forward in the coming years?
2: Ken? Ken? Well, I'd like to point out that Nebraska has one of the lowest unemployment rates in the country, around 4%, and we've managed to do it without having this huge project. I respect the fact that people need jobs, and I'm glad that I get paid to do the work that I do. But only about 100 jobs, from what I've heard, would actually be for Nebraskans. Most of them would be from people who would travel along with the pipeline. So... If the pipeline is not approved, and we certainly hope that President Obama does deny the pipeline permit as he's done before, we hope that the emphasis goes more toward renewable energy. And there really are more economic opportunities for renewable energy in Nebraska. So we want to see a a cleaner economy. We think it will be healthier for us. And I think any decision that's made should not just be considered short-term gain, but what is going to be the impact on our children and grandchildren.
0: Thank you. Donna, your
1: guest? Yes, Corey Goulet. What happens if Keystone XL is not built?
5: Well, maybe a glass half-full person, but I believe it'll be built because there's bipartisan support in the United States for the project. But more importantly, the majority of Americans support this project. It doesn't matter what jurisdiction you go into, anywhere from 60% to 80% of folks support this project, because they understand the economic benefits of this project, they understand the energy independence that this will bring to North America, and they understand this will be a safe pipeline that won't harm the environment.
1: And if it's not built?
5: We'll be relying on rail a little longer.
1: Andrew Leach, what if Keystone XL isn't built? Uh,
3: Well, we'll probably see something pretty similar to what happened the last time Keystone XL was turned down. You will see pipelines are a competitive market. And the long-term contracts that shippers provide to pipeline companies are very valuable. So you're going to see other pipeline companies, and I would assume also TransCanada, scrambling to find alternate solutions, not simply throwing up their hands and saying, oh, well, we're there. It's now rail's turn. Go ahead and take over. You're going to see existing pipeline applications get pushed harder through the regulatory process. You're going to see oil sands companies working to secure their transportation on other projects. It's going to be a shake-up of that contracting system. I think publicly what that particular project, because it's become so symbolic, it will depend on how symbolic the rejection is. But what I would hope it does is drive us to a conversation, perhaps a more sophisticated conversation on what do we want as Canadians that we can't all of a sudden stand up and say, okay, People will allow us to build pipelines wherever we want. People will take our oil no matter what. There will be a pipeline wherever we want it to go without objection from First Nations as long as we provide enough jobs. And suddenly to see that maybe all of these things are not as true as we thought they were and start to reevaluate some of that, uh, I'd use the term responsible resource development. I think it's the right term, but again, coming to a ground on a definition for that.
1: Thank you. Hari?
0: unofficial close to the program. Uh, Listen, I I really do appreciate you all. I know that this is incredibly personal and incredibly important to the people both here in Nebraska and the people in in Calgary. I, I totally appreciate the fact that you showed some respect and we disagreed. I really do hope that you learned something from somebody that you disagreed with tonight, whether it was on this side of the border or the other side of the border. So I thank you very much. Now the official close. So this concludes the Keystone XL Pipeline, and international town hall. We'd like to thank our partners to the north, CBC Calgary, and my co-host Donna McElligott of the radio program Alberta at Noon.
1: Thank you, Hari. And I'd like to thank my guests tonight, Corey Goulet from TransCanada and Andrew Leach from the University of Alberta, and our studio audience and our distinguished guests who are part of that. Thank you.
0: Thanks Donna and I'd like to thank our guests here in Lincoln Ken Winson from Nebraska Sierra Club John Keane from Nebraska's Public Power District and our studio audience. The executive producer of this hour is Martha Little. Rob Sachs is the producer. We thank our co-host, the CBC in Calgary, Alberta. Bernard Graham is the executive producer there. We'd like to acknowledge Dave Cockton's technical team for their terrific support. Thanks to NET Nebraska for the technical support and the use of their studios. Thanks to Kim Machia for her public relations work in Nebraska. Also thanks to Fora TV for providing live web streaming of this program. You can hear past programs by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes, finding us on the TuneIn or public radio International or America Abroad apps or by visiting our website americaabroad.org. I'm Hari Srinivasan, and this is America Abroad from Public Radio International. Thank you. (laughs) Support for this show was provided by the Oak Foundation.
11: P.R.I.